Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We are getting to the end. Uh, we're almost to the finish line. Next week, we will finish out this series on the book of Jude. And um, next week, I'll actually give you guys a little teaser of where we're going to go from there. And uh, so I'm going to save that. I think for some of you, you're really going to appreciate where we're going. And, uh, but I'll share more about that uh, next week. Uh, for today, there's going to be a massive shift in feel to Jude. But up till now, the entire thing has really been telling us who not to, you know, what not to do, who not to emulate, what examples not to follow. We don't want to be wolves in sheep's clothing. We don't want to be like these mockers and scoffers, these dreamers. We don't want to come into the church and turn the grace of God into lewdness. I mean, this has been the entirety from verse, essentially from verse 1 all the way to 19. Today, Jude is going to totally turn. He's going to shift gears, and he's going to tell us who we need to be and what we need to do. And so this is where we're going to pick it up. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. Uh, Guys, give me a boost there. Okay, we're good. All right, verse 20, here we go. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. First thing I want you to recognize is Jude is calling his brother, and by extension, us. We are called to be builders. We're called to be craftsmen to actually build upon our faith. Now, when you look at that, you have to ask the question, what does that mean? I mean, really, what what does it look like? Well, I'm going to tell you, in Jude's epistle which is very brief, he doesn't go into a discourse of what that would look like. And why doesn't he do that? Because several times I've already shown you that Jude's expectation for the recipients of this letter, Jude is speaking at a very high level of expectation. And so he will say certain things, but that statement has a world of understanding behind it of which Jude expects them to know. So this tells us he really knows his audience well. So he doesn't go into this grand discourse about what does it mean to build on, my, on our holy faith. However, here's the beauty. Peter, who gives the exact same sermon, he does. He goes into great detail. And so to truly appreciate what does it really mean, hey, we need to build on our faith, we're going to go look at Peter's version of Jude's sermon. And we're going to glean from this. And so with that said, let's jump into this. Second Peter 1.5. But also for this very reason, given all diligence, what does he say? He says this. Click me. Or what is going on? Help me out. You're leaving us hanging here. Add to your faith. This is it. Add to your faith. Now, there's a lot here that we need to unpack, and really the first thing that I want to mention here is Peter is very specific in a manner by which you're to add to your faith. When you look at, the, and I didn't put this in the Greek, I'm sorry, but when you look at this, given all diligence, diligence, it's spude in the Greek, or the inflected form spuden, it literally means to move with haste, to move quickly. This means you don't deliberate. This means you don't give into complacency, right? You don't sit around looking at the four walls. This means it's go time. It is time to add to your faith. Specifically, that moment when you came into the confession where you confessed with your mouth the Lord Yeshua, you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You went and got baptized. You accepted and received the gospel. According to Jude, according to Peter, explicitly with Peter, now you are supposed to add to that, move with lightning speed. Now that that sets the whole stage for what we're about to dig into, that we're to add to our faith. Now you think about Christianity today, and and progressive Christianity, this this Christianity that tells you... You can't add to your faith. Actually, what they do is they formulate teachings to tell you if if you in any way are thinking that you're going to add to your faith, that you need to do something, then you are rejecting grace itself and you're rejecting Christ. This is the mantra that's being peddled. 
It's interesting, here we have the New Testament, two individuals will look at others. Two individuals, Peter and Jude, both really well informed on the gospel, telling us the exact opposite thing to do than what the church is telling us today. We are to add to our faith and to do it again with lightning speed. The other thing I want to mention here before we dig into this is the context by which the statement is made. Think about the context in the statement that's made in Peter. Obviously, we know Peter warns us about false teachers. They're going to come in. They're going to tear up the flock. Jude, same context. Same exact context. And the reason I bring this up is this statement is being made in a context where you have imposters coming into the church. And what you need to understand is that all these imposters, these dreamers, these wolves in sheep's clothing, do you know what they don't do? They do not add to the faith. They will not build on the faith. That's what separates the sheep from the wolves. It's the building. You're going to see that today. So with that said, let's dig into this. What does it mean to build on our faith? Well, Peter gets so specific, and he begins to tell us, add to your faith, arete, arete in the Greek. This means moral virtue, moral excellence, sexual purity. And what that means is, is that this, isn't it interesting? Let's just stop here for a second. The first thing commanded, this is Peter, the first thing he says, now this wasn't an accident, he just grabbed something more beautiful out of scripture and we'll just, yeah, we'll, you know, add to your faith. I like this, so let's just throw this in here. Peter is very intentional. He was very specific why he picked moral excellence first. All you do, go back to, uh, uh, what, what is it, Acts, Acts 15. Acts 15, you have the Gentiles who came into the faith, they accepted the gospel. What was the first thing commanded to them that they had to do to abstain from sexual immorality? Get your arete, get your moral excellence in order because we are the temple of the living God. Add to your faith. It's the first thing they were told. And what that means in a practical way today, it means, it means different things for different people. You struggle with same-sex attraction. That's a real thing. It's a real fleshly emotion. We all have our struggles. Now, some of us don't struggle in that area, but we all have our struggles. That's a real emotion. It's a fleshly draw. What does it mean to erase it? What does it mean? You lock it down. You don't give in to that. Now it's time to go to war, people. You've entered into the faith. Now you war against the fleshly desires, against the emotions. You, you, you struggle with porn. You struggle with looking at porn. You can't do this. I love what Job says in, in Job 31. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not lust after a woman. A covenant with his eyes. And that's the first thing we're supposed to do when we add to the faith. David says that I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. See, because we're the temple of God. We've got to take every thought captive. For some of you, maybe you run a carnival of debauchery in your mind, of immorality, of immoral thoughts. Maybe you're lusting after somebody else's husband. Maybe you're lusting after somebody else's wife. Take captive every thought. Get to moral excellence. This is the first thing that we have to get right. In this building process. And I'm going to tell you, all the things that we look at today, guess what? They're not optional. You don't get to pick this one and this one. And you know what? That one I really don't want to do. Every single one of these that Peter is going to list out, life and death for you. It is the difference between whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. This could not be more serious than what we're looking at. So he says, add to your faith virtue, and then we continue and add to virtue knowledge. We're going to spend some time on this because, again, this is the difference between heaven and hell. What kind of knowledge are we talking about here? Are we talking about the world's knowledge, man's wisdom? I mean, what knowledge do we need to add to our faith? And the answer is, that to, is, is the knowledge of God, obviously. What's not so obvious, which is apparent to me today looking at the church, is what is the knowledge of God? I mean, if we're supposed to add this to our faith, I need to know what the knowledge of God is. 
we're going to look at what the knowledge of God is. We're going to allow Scripture, God himself, it's actually God speaking. We're going to allow God to define what he means when he says knowledge so that we can appreciate where Jude's coming from. We can appreciate where Peter's coming from. And the way I want to do this is I want to begin to take you to Hosea. We're going to spend some time in Hosea. Or we're going to be jumping around back and forth because there's a lot there. But we're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 6. And he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, I'm just going to say up front, if you wanted to know whether or not it's necessary for you to add knowledge to your faith, look no further. The Lord couldn't be clearer. It's as, as important as it gets, quite literally life and death. You don't do this, you're going to be destroyed. And you know the thing that I love about this? Look at this. I'm going to highlight this. My people, my church, think about this. My church is destroyed from lack of knowledge. See, this is the air that is plaguing progressive Christianity today. Where they're out peddling this nonsensical message that, no, you, I'm sorry, any work that you're attempting to do, any commandment that you're putting yourself under, all that is is your own selfishness, your own your self-righteousness, and you trying to earn salvation. This is, this is what is being taught. You don't need to study the Torah. It's antiquated. It's outdated. All you're doing is putting yourself into bondage. This is what's being taught today. Now, what's fascinating, as we continue, guess what the Lord is going to tell us? His knowledge is his law. It is his Torah. And he goes on and he says this, because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being Cohen for me. We're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. This is what we're called to be, a kingdom of priests. And what he's saying is, is like, when you reject my knowledge, I'm rejecting you. This is going to be the effect. And, and again, this is the Lord speaking. And then he says this, because you have forgotten the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children. Notice, to reject knowledge is synonymous to forget the law, to abandon the law. It's the exact same statement said differently. These are transposable terms. The Lord has just defined so that you understand, so that I understand what this knowledge is that we're supposed to be adding to the faith. It's supposed to be us giving ourselves over to the Torah, over to his word. The knowledge of God, and hence the, the, the front part of, look at, look at what it says, K-N-O-W. Know. The knowledge of God is to know God. It's to know him. We get to know him through his word, his personality, his characteristics, the things that provoke him to anger, the things that please him. It is literally his personality. I think we forget that Yeshua is literally the Torah. He's the Torah made flesh. And so there's a very disturbing trend in Christianity, a perverted, a perverted viewpoint of what the Torah is. The devil has come and flipped this thing up on its head and has convinced the church that it's a curse. It's convinced the church that it's only bondage when in fact it is the personality of Yeshua. It's literally him. We're in trouble. I mean, we are in trouble in these days. I want to build on this. I mean, if you think this is intense, I'm going to take it a step further and take you to Proverbs. And look at what Proverbs says. It says this. Click it if you would. Proverbs 1.23. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. And I just want to stop there. Here we are in the days of repentance, right? We're in the 40 days of Teshuvah. Alul 1 all the way to Yom Kippur. We're at this time, and here we are reading this. I just, this is fascinating. God's promise. His promise to us is turn at his rebuke, and I will pour out my spirit. How many of you want his Holy Spirit, his power resting upon you? Listen to these words. Turn at his rebuke. That's when we get that Holy Spirit. It's a heart thing. Because I have called and you refused, I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you have, click me again. There we go. Because you have disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. I also will laugh at your calamity. This is God. This is not one of your friends that is mocking you. 
He says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will list, they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. One of the scariest verses in all the scripture. This is not what I'm expecting to read. See, because I read in Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And I can give you dozens and dozens and dozens of verses just like it. I can read all over scripture. And now I come to this and it tells me, well, you can call upon, you can seek him diligently. And he's not coming. He's not coming. He will not hear you. In fact, when you need him most, when you're in that time of trial and calamity, he's going to mock at your calamity. One of the scariest passages. Why? How is this possible that we can read certain passages like Psalm 50, verse 15, but then I read something like this? Why? This is the answer. Because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. You want to reject his Torah? You want to reject his word? Again, do not marvel at the fact that the enemy would go after the Torah. Look at this. Look at what happens. When you reject Yeshua, you are, you, when you reject the Torah, you're rejecting Yeshua. And you're in a place, no matter how much you seek him, you can seek him to your blue in the face. You can pray to him all day long. But if you don't yield your heart to his voice, to his word, you get nothing. This is terrifying. And this is why when I look at the Christian church today, it vexes me. Because we're talking about the difference between people going to heaven and hell. Hosea, jumping back, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Our, what we're called to do is we're called to go forth and pursue him, his knowledge, his character, his personality. He wants relationship. He wants us to go on an investigation seeking his character, not who we want him to be. Not who our flesh wants to design, where we create our own Jesuses. And those are the Jesuses that we're going to follow. And Paul picks up on this. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, finding out what's acceptable to the Lord. We're to find out, we're to seek, we're to know the difference between right and wrong. But that's not based on our own assessment. It's based on his Torah. It's based on his truth. And, you know, and I didn't put this up here, but just a couple verses before this, Paul actually warns, let no one deceive you with empty words. The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Make no mistake. And there's deception involved in that, specifically for the church. There's deception. I want to take you to Hebrews 5. The writer in, in this passage, he's expressing his great displeasure with his brethren. He is upset. You know why? They haven't added to their faith. They haven't grown in the faith. They become stagnant. They become complacent, spiritual, spiritually lethargic. And he's angry. Well, he says in verse 13, we'll pick it up here. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's a babe. In other words, you're not progressing. You have not added to your faith. What? The knowledge of God. You have not done this. Verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age. That is, who, those who by reason of use, oh, they have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. Do you understand? When you grow in the knowledge of God, the ability that you're given, now you will be able to distinguish between good and evil in a generation that is wallowing in deception and a deception that is so scary that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Yeah, this isn't a game. You need to add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge. You need to know him. You need to have him, his truth. Only then are you going to be able to weather the storm. Because I'm going to tell you, and I've told you this how many times, you are not equipped to go up against the enemy on your own. You are not equipped. You're going to be taken out. He will have you turned upside down in so many different ways. You won't know up from down unless you've clothed yourself in the truth of God, unless you've clothed yourself in his word, you've opened your heart to it. 
Jumping back to Hosea. Listen to what the Lord says. His words. He says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want to stop here. Multiple times do we not see Yeshua actually quote this. This is his heart. He desires mercy. But what in, the, in what context? Well, he wants to give it. He wants you to receive his mercy. That's why when he came, he sat with tax collectors and sinners. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the wicked. He would pouring out his mercy and his desire in his heart, receive his grace. But that's not all he wants. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This is what he wants for you to receive. You are to receive the knowledge of God. Open your heart to his Torah. Let him speak to you. Whereas the devil is convincing Christians all over the place. Don't you dare hear it because you're abandoning grace. It's the, it's the opposition to grace. It has nothing to say to you. Apparently God has nothing to say to me. We lost our minds. I want to share with you just a couple passages. A friend of mine sent this to me actually just yesterday as she was reading uh, a, a, a very, very well-known uh, Pastor Andy Stanley, you know, governs like a 10,000-person church, had wrote a book and was sharing his pearls of wisdom, of which looks like this. The first one here that I'm going to share with you, bottom line, if Paul had been around in the fourth century when the bishops and theologians were brainstorming titles for the major divisions of what would eventually be called the Bible, I'm pretty sure he would have opted for the term obsolete over old as an Old Testament. Imagine that, the obsolete Testament and the New Testament. It's not pithy, but it's accurate. Has nothing to say to you. This is what pastors, so as I'm telling you this, of this progressive Christianity, and you know, how many pastors could we, could we quote? That's what's scary. This is what thousands and thousands of Christians are being taught. They're throwing away the knowledge of God, and you will be destroyed. Check out this one. But what's more mind-boggling than that, they decided unity in the church was more important than the law of Moses as in the apostles. This guy is actually trying to convince his flock that the apostles said, we're going to put unity above the law of Moses, and so he's totally degrading the law of Moses. Newsflash, the Torah promotes unity. That's what it promotes. You remember Leviticus 19 where it says, you shall not take vengeance against your neighbor. Oh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The heart of Torah is right there. It builds unity. You know what it does? It tells you you are to be your brother's keeper when your brother's ox goes astray. You are not to hide yourself from it. No, no, you're to take it in because this is, a, this is about unity. This is not about division. When the poor is in need, you open wide your hand to the poor, Deuteronomy 15. The whole thing fosters love and unity. That's what it is. It's the knowledge of God. It is the mind of God. This is not the mind of Moses. This is not the mind of anyone else. It wasn't the mind of Joshua. Certainly, clearly wasn't the mind of all the other ones that followed these beautiful men of God. It was the mind of God. We are his creation. And you got one or two decisions. You can either say, I'm going to, I'm going to seek after the mind of God because I want to become like him and I want to please him. Or you can reject him outright. Reject that knowledge. I mean, stuff like this, we shouldn't be surprised because this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. What did Satan do? Think about this and go home and read it. Satan went out and convinced Eve that she was being held back, that she needed to be liberated. She needed to progress. This is what he convinced her of. No, 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 you're not going to die. You should go eat this tree. You need to go eat this tree because guess what? God knows the moment you experience that, you're going to be like him. Liberate yourself, Eve. Set yourself free from the bondage of God's commandments. And of course, he lied. She ended up dying. Ended up being cursed and cast out of the garden. He's telling the exact same lie right now. Take you to Philippians 1.9. This is what we read. And this I pray, this is Paul, 
that your love may abound still more and more. So you have Jude telling us, hey, you're to build up on your most holy faith. You have Peter telling us, you better add to your faith and do it with haste. And now Paul comes on the scene and says the exact same thing, a little different wording. Your love is to abound more and more. What does that look like, Paul? Well, look at what Paul means in knowledge and all discernment. You're to grow in the knowledge of the living God. This is the expectation. And then he says this, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere. In the Greek, it's pure. You're to be holy and without offense till the day of Christ. This very statement, and I I never miss an opportunity to discuss this, what I have highlighted, exactly what Paul says here, that you may approve the things that are excellent, he makes the exact same statement in Romans 2. And you know what he adds to it? You approve the things that are excellent, then he says, being instructed out of the law. This is how we approve the things that are excellent. We must be instructed out of the law. To do that, you actually have to study it. You have to believe it. You have to submit to it. And only then will we add to our faith knowledge. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and powerful. And the writer, what he has in mind here is the Tanakh. It's the Torah. It's the prophets. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Oh, it is a discerner on the thoughts of intents of the heart. Exactly what Paul wanted you to get from the Torah. The writer of Hebrews is confessing the same thing. This is the power of Torah. I have the ability that I don't have on my own to discern between good and evil. And again, what did Spurgeon say? I just shared this. But Spurgeon shared specifically that discernment's not a matter of telling the difference between right and wrong. Discernment's the matter of telling the difference between that which is right and that which appears to be right. It looks exactly what is right, and only through the knowledge of God are we going to be able to make the distinction. That's why I'm telling you, you're not equipped for this war. You and of yourself, you are not equipped. The devil will tear you to shreds. You won't know what hits you. And then you'll be calling on God, and he's going to laugh and mock at your calamity. Because you hate him, you rejected him. You already rejected him. You're rejecting his knowledge. You're rejecting his word. Yeah, see, these are sermons nobody wants to hear. These are messages that nobody's going to invite me to come out and preach. I can assure you of that. <laughs> you know, I was reading the other day in, in Deuteronomy 17. I'll just give you an example of the beauty of Torah. I was reading in there, and you know, how many times have we read this? Thousands? Who knows? We don't, we don't know. It's just a lot of times. But there are moments that you're captivated. And we're, the Holy Spirit, and, and, and I know you're with me on this. When you read something, the Holy Spirit just is on you. And you're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, and it's so precious. And I'll just give you an example of this. So I'm reading through Deuteronomy 17. And what it is, it's, it's all about the, the king, the king of Israel. And the king of Israel is supposed to do some things, and the king of Israel is not supposed to do some things. He's not supposed to make his people go back to Egypt. He's not supposed to multiply horses for himself. He's not supposed to multiply wives for himself. He's not supposed to multiply silver and gold. This is the king of Israel. He's not supposed to do any of that. What is he supposed to do? This is what's mind-blowing. He's supposed to get himself a copy of the Torah, and he is to read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord God. That's what he's supposed to do. The very thing the devil has convinced the church, they don't need any of it. The king of Israel has been told, this is where you go. This is your happy place. This is where you stay. And then it says one other thing. In addition, you will learn to fear the Lord your God. Oh, this, this is what captivated me. And that your heart may not be lifted above your brethren. <laughs> Think about it. When I go to the knowledge of the Lord, when I go to the Torah, and I start reading in the Torah, what does it cultivate? Humility. Total humility, even at the status of a king, so that his heart is not lifted up. Why is that important? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you want grace? You better be applying, studying, and taking in the Torah, and it's going to bring you low. It will humble you. We need this. 
And yet I can tell you, I can look at a church all over the place, ridiculous sermons going out that whether they know it or not are filled with arrogance and pride. It's absolutely demonic. We need this. We need the knowledge of God. I want to take you and show you this principle in action in different parts of scripture. And what I'm about to show you is one of the most important biblical principles. You know, what Jude is sharing and what Peter is sharing, that we're to add to our faith is so central, but I'm going to bring this all together so that you understand there is a true biblical relationship between law and grace. There's a true relationship here. In Exodus 9, we read, And the Lord said to Moshe, Go into Pharaoh, tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, And what's he say here? Shalachet ami. Let my people go. Now pay attention. What does that mean? What is happening? What is God coming to do? He's coming to give grace and mercy to his people to set them free to redeem them. And they're going to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. This is grace. This is mercy. Here we are. What is the Lord's expectation when his people receive the grace of God? The expectation is this, that they may serve me. Serve him. I challenge you to go home, read Romans 6. We are to become servants, slaves of righteousness because we've been forgiven. Because we've experienced the grace. That is the expectation. This is why the writer of Hebrews is angry that his brethren are not progressing. This is why Jude is bringing this to the table. You better build up on your holy faith. And and Peter says, you better add to your faith and you better do it with lightning speed. Because this is a reality. Going back to Hosea, I'm going to give you this principle in a really cool way. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. How many times do you read stuff like that in the Bible all the time? No, that's nuts. That is crazy. Why would the Lord command such a thing? Fortunately, we're told. We just continue to read, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. In other words, the Lord's coming on the scene and he's saying, my people, my bride, she's committing adultery against me. And so Hosea, you are my prophet. I want you to go take a woman by harlotry. And then we read this. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half omers of barley. You want to talk about a verse sparking all sorts of discussion. This verse has done it. There are scholars that have come on the scene and are perplexed as to why, and and they offer, you know, uh, potential solutions to this. Why would this guy give 15 shekels of silver and then have to pay the rest with barley? Is it because he wasn't wealthy? Maybe he just didn't have enough. Or maybe, you know, the scholars are looking at this just shows that he had to scrape every penny he could in his arsenal to come and buy her. And while that may be true, and actually I see the prophetic implication there, I see it's powerful because God himself could not have given anything more costly than his son to redeem us. And so that, I look at that, and so I I appreciate that. Um, The other thought here that is worth sharing is that there are some scholars that actually look at the, the amount of barley that's being measured out. It would equal 15 shekels of silver. And so now you don't have 15 shekels, you have 30 shekels. Isn't that interesting? That was the princely price they set on Yeshua. And then, of course, if you look at the aspect that he's paying in barley, well, when's the barley harvest? Well, it's during Pesach. I mean, there's all sorts of cool stuff here. But what I want you to take away from this is this. Hosea is coming to redeem her. He's coming to show her mercy and grace, and to bring honor. This is what he's doing. What, is, what follows this? I mean, this is what you see. Everywhere we look in the Bible, this is what you would expect to see. He says this, and I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so too will I be toward you. In other words, stop sinning. I will purchase you. I will redeem you. I will bring honor to you. 
Knock it off. Get in line. Be faithful to me. And this is exactly what the Lord's heartbeat is. That was the whole concept of when he gave his son, is that the return would be faithfulness. And now we're being told, no, that's the exact opposite. You can't be faithful, then you're rejecting grace. This is insane. These people are insane. They're spiritually deprived. I'll take you to the Torah in Deuteronomy 6. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of these testimonies? Meaning the Ten Commandments. The statutes and the judgments, all those other in-between parts we read in the Torah, which the Lord our God has commanded you, knowing that, hey, I'm preparing you. Your children are going to ask you, why are we doing this? Because here's what's going to happen. Israel goes into the land, and guess what? There's still pagans scattered throughout the land. Virtually everywhere you look, there's going to be pagans in all these different territories. And their children are going to rise up, and what are they going to say? Well, the pagans are doing something completely different. They seem to let their hair down a little bit more than we do. Well, wait a second. Why, why are we doing these things? Why do we have to do these commandments? It's because he set them free. He's the Lord God that brought them out of Egypt, out of bondage. That's why. And we go in verse 24. Then you shall say to your son, this is verse 21 rather. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, mercy. So put this together. Why are we doing the commandments? Because God showed mercy and love. The expectation, that's God's expectation. Then we move on to verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. In other words, do you understand when God told Eve, don't go eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was for her life. The devil convinced it, convinced Eve, no, that, that is actually for your bondage. It's absolutely insane that we have, of course, the church won't see this. Why? Because they won't read the Torah. They won't get the mind of God. Psalm 19, 119, verse 88, our revival theme verse. So revive me according to your loving kindness. And then it says, that I might keep the testimony of your mouth. Give us mercy. This is the heartbeat. We want mercy for what purpose? See, the psalmist is praying according to the will of God, to the mind of God. He knows, oh yes, no, bestow your mercy on me because I know that you know what I'm supposed to do? Oh, I'm supposed to keep the testimonies of your mouth. And we bring glory to him and we please him when we do this. Jumping to the New Testament, this is not something that's just this principle stuck in the Tanakh. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So simple. There's nothing complicated about this. There is nothing we did in this life to earn salvation, to earn or merit the coming of Yeshua for him to give us his, for him to give us his life. Nothing. We achieved nothing. He didn't say, wow, you guys are so good, I have to come and die. You guys are amazing. Not true. It's the exact opposite. This is a very simple concept. Hence why we read... Um, he, we love him because he first loved us. Is it right? We read that in first. Well, this is why we read in, in Romans that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans five. Okay, this is a simple concept. It's pure grace. This is called justification. We are justified by the blood of Yeshua through faith in Him, of course. But what does that mean? That now we're set free to walk according to the dictates of our own heart? What is the expectation? Look at the very next verse that um, Paul gives us in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, meaning righteousness, truth, his commandments, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto thy path. We are to walk in it. And it was already established so that when grace comes upon us, guess what we do? We walk in his truth. 
We walk in his Torah. This is the expectation. Paul says to Titus, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. Which, and it's important you understand what this means. What that means is to those who are righteous and holy, to those who are faithful, when God speaks, every word of God is pure. As we read in Proverbs 30. And you confess it. You accept that truth. So to the pure, all things are pure. It's not saying to the pure, you know what, even sin is pure. No, this is not what it's saying. The things of God are pure to the pure. They identify with it. They don't say, no, it's, not, it's done away with. No, it's not for me. No, we're to unhitch from it. It doesn't say anything like that. But then he goes on and says, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Get that? Defiled and unbelieving. They can go to the word and it will not resonate. They will not accept it. This is where they're at. And this is the scariest part. Listen to what he says when it goes on. They profess to know God. They're confessing Yeshua. They're confessing. See, this is the whole concept of what Jude was, was conveying to us. This is how scary it is. These are Christians going out professing to know God, but in works, their actions. And apparently, you know, again, this progressive Christianity tells you it doesn't matter what you do. Because works isn't going to matter. It can't keep you out of heaven. But here we read Paul, and we can read Yeshua, who tell us otherwise, in works they deny him. They're abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. How do I know what is an abomination? There's only one way. I have to read. I have to get his knowledge. I have to get his mind, his definition of what is abominable. See, because there are parts of Christianity where these pastors are going out telling their people, no, you can engage in a same-sex lifestyle. It's totally okay. Well, just go read the Torah, and the word literally abomination is used in regard to that behavior. And I'm not trying to pick on any type of sin, but this is something that's prevalent right now. And they're sending people to hell. All on the basis of, that's not for you, doesn't apply to you, it doesn't matter anymore. Getting back to Peter's discourse here. You're to add to faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, onto knowledge, self-control. Do you see how systematic this is? Yeah, you had first virtue, then you get the knowledge, which that's the exact order, by the way, when you go back to Acts 15. Read verse 20 and then read verse 21. Talks about Moses being spoke in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, so get your moral virtue right. Now you're going to get the knowledge of God. Can't even make this stuff up. It's all consistent. This, this stuff's all there. But then it says, now add self-control. In other words, the stuff that I've received from the Torah, the words of God that have come to me, now I move on them and I practice them. I'm practicing what God is preaching. Their self-control. That normally when, when you, know, you have someone that was given, whether to a lustful eye, or maybe they have anger issues, and they can't help blowing up. This is how they were. Their flesh gets upset, and they just blow up. Self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, locks it down. It doesn't allow it to happen. To self-control, we're to add perseverance. And again... Unfortunately, for every one of you, you will, have, uh, you will have the option to exercise this. See, because everybody in this room is going to experience tribulation. Okay? Yeshua tells us, right? In John 16, he, tells, he makes it very clear. In this world, you will have tribulation. Acts 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You know, 2 Timothy 3, everyone who seeks to live godly in Messiah, Yeshua, will suffer persecution you are going to get the opportunity to endure or not to endure, to persevere or not persevere. And see, that's the thing. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, 3, that we know tribulation, tribulation produces perseverance. And then after that, perseverance, character and character, hope. Which, in essence, we see this is exactly where Peter goes. He says, add to perseverance, what? Godliness, character, this is where you, and again, not optional. This is where you're supposed to go in the faith. You're supposed to be taking on such amazing character that people know that you're different. 
There's a radical change in you. You don't think the same way you used to think. You don't behave the same way you used to behave. There's a real change. This is the beautiful character of God. This is when holiness sets in. This is when you even step back and you realize, without even realizing at the time, then you come to a place and you look and you say, I'm practicing righteousness like on a consistent basis. I'm immersed in prayer. I'm immersed in the word. And I'm talking to people about the Lord. And I'm praying with other people. This is when you start to know, man, there's godliness in here. I am, as a husband, I'm actually taking the spiritual head and the authority in the house. And I'm leading my house in diligence with the Lord. I mean, this is all part of the character. This is all part of this development. Awesome. And to godliness, what do we add? Brotherly kindness. See, we're to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. We're to put the interest. This is when you come, when you add to your faith and you start developing character and godliness, you, you, you'll start to know you're going to put the interest of others above your own. You're not so selfish anymore. You will realize, oh, wait a second, I am my brother's keeper. The very things that the Torah teaches, you will embrace. You will, you will not take vengeance against your neighbor, but you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will show, you know, uh, Proverbs 19, verse 22, it says, what is desired of man is chesed, loving kindness. To think about others. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And then you hit the crescendo right here. Add to brotherly kindness, love. That's the summit. You talk about building all this. The summit is love. And it, it, no surprise, because what is God described as? He's literally described as love. God is love. John makes the point to bring it across. And what does this look like? 1 Corinthians 13, we read this. Love suffers long. So when I hit this summit, when I've added to my faith properly and I've come to this point, that means I will be patient. I will have patience I never had before. And it is kind it does not envy as the Pharisees envied Yeshua and put him on a cross. It doesn't envy. It doesn't parade itself. Is not puffed up. Pride is gone. They've taken on the knowledge of God. They've learned that God has brought them down and, and, and sown humility in them. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. See, those moments that where you used to lose it on people... When love is abiding, when the Spirit of God abides in you, you're settled. Thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Ah, oh, when you hit that marker in love, guess what? Those sins that used to appeal to you, you despise. Are you there? The sins that were so drawn to you that used to appeal to you, do you despise them now? When love reigns in your heart, when the Spirit of God has filled you up, you will hate your past sins. They will be anathema to you, a total offense. The sins that are going on in the world will crush you. You will mourn them like Lot, mourning, seeing, and hearing of their lawless deeds. You'll be overcome by that. This is a real thing. And, you know, just one quick thing. I shouldn't blow past this. But where it says, thinks no evil. When you go to the Greek on it, you know what it means? Listen to me. It means you do not hold in an account of those who have sinned against you. You do not retain bitterness. So I'm going to tell you right now, you can tell me all you want that you are following Jesus and you read the word every day. But if you're retaining bitterness, you are deceived. You are not walking in love. It does not hold an account of people who have sinned against you. Now, this can be startling because when you struggle with bitterness, and I have in my past, oh yeah. I mean, I'll come out, and I'm not proud of this. I'm just telling you, I can come out and be vulnerable and say, yeah, this is a struggle. And it shakes me to the core when I realize that if I give in to that, no, I'm not walking in love, and that's where I'm supposed to be. That's the essence of the summit of what we're supposed to be. And then he says, it bears all things. It believes all things. See, it has endurance. And the reason I'm taking you through this love chapter, do you understand, do you notice anything? All the things that we just went through that Peter laid out, 
are all encompassed in love. You'll find them all. It's absolutely amazing. So it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and then he says love never fails. How many times have you failed in your life? You can't count them, can you? You can't. How many times, how many times have you done things you regret and you look back and you mourn it? Now, I'm going to tell you something. Love, when you act in love, you will never fail. You will never go back and regret whatever you said, whatever you did, when you do it, and love, there's no regret. It's the most powerful thing in the universe. And when you want to walk in the power of God, this is where we're supposed to be. This, as a flock, this is where we're supposed to go. This is the goal. You read this. You, you go through this love chapter. How are you doing? How are you measuring up? I think it's time we move with lightning speed to start adding to our faith. What do we add? We add, well, I'll get to that in a second. But I want to I finish out here. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord, Messiah Yeshua. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So all of these things, now we can go through this. All of these things that Peter mentions here, the faith, the virtue, the knowledge, the self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, all of these things, if you lack... Peter says, if you lack these things, you are blind. And we know what happens to those who are blind. They're going to fall off a cliff. And when Yeshua says, these are the blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they're both going off the, uh, off the ditch. But just go through these things. You go home, it's time for self-assessment to say, how am I measuring up? Where do I lack? Where have I failed to build on my faith? And so that challenge is put out to you for this week because this is where we need to be, amen?